Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if I was a spy, my undercover disguise of choice would definitely be a balloon salesman, because nobody kicks balloon salesmen, and also they're awesome. I'm Caitlin, and if I were an undercover spy, I would be a cabbage salesman, because then I could yell, my cabbages, <laughs> whenever anything bad happened. Don't you feel like that would draw attention to you, though? But not for the wrong reasons. People will be like, it's that weird cabbage guy. No, that's true. That's Nobody would true. think about all of the information. I mean, really, I wonder if it's like a Jar Jar Binks is the Sith sort of a thing. Where <laughs> the, the cabbage the, guy. The cabbage really guy. <laughs> well, and when your cabbages roll everywhere, you can chase them into nooks and crannies and political buildings, right? So That's true. I'm Kristen. If I were a spy, my disguise of choice would be to be a pizza delivery person because I feel like everyone is always looking for pizza and no one is going to question a free pizza. Heck yeah, I wouldn't. I'm not quite sure that's how that works, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Cameron, and I am definitely the fop who is too dumb and incompetent to actually be dangerous. You wear shoes with the big curly toes. Exactly. Mm. All right, that's a good disguise. I like that one. Well, today we're not talking about spies, but we are talking about intrigue and sneaky stuff. We are going to discuss what makes for good politics in a fictional world. And you may be thinking, oh, my book doesn't have politics, but the secret is all books have politics, whether they're big fantasy tomes or, you know, a middle, middle grade kind of fun book. So what details do fictional politics need to make them engaging and believable? Well, the first thing that came to mind for me is that books like the real world can often be messy and it helps if there are multiple sides to any argument. Like if it, it's not clear which side is 100% right. I just feel like that's reflective of reality, but also it leads to some really interesting storylines. If you've got all of your characters disagreeing about what to do and why to do it, even if they're all technically like good guys, you know what I'm saying? If we're talking politics, it often less becomes about who's right and more which motivations are in competition with each other and how on earth are the involved parties going to navigate that competition absolutely i mean i feel like politics are a really good way to illustrate the problems in a society because usually government is used to address those problems and so you have people who their problem is they need more money or it can be on like lots of different levels too you can have the person who just doesn't want to get taxed as much or the person who is literally starving you know like there's a whole slew of ills that can be addressed or not addressed by the government and so i think it's a really like, I don't know that every book needs to get into, like, that big picture of politics. Matter of fact, my favorite thing with politics is usually, like, dirty politics and, like, corrupt stuff happening in the background and how people are like, I'm doing good stuff, but really it's because I want money. So I don't know what that says about me and my, my <laughs> viewpoints on the world. But, um, well, and there's also, like, politics between – there's, like, social politics. Like, I love some of the examples that are here in, in our outline, which I hope you guys will talk about. People who use other people to get stuff done, and that gets those smaller people in trouble. And, like, there's lots of, of fun social situations you can be put in based on who you're aligned with or who you work for or whatever else. There's a yeah. uh, fan – fantastic quote from one of my favorite web comics uh, schlock mercenary which is all conversation is psychological warfare <laughs> and i think <laughs> whether or not that's true exactly if you're talking about writing a political narrative uh, or a political um conflict in a book that's something to keep in mind that people who are using other people and words as weapons that every conversation they have is 
trying to get leverage on someone else somehow. Well, that's a great point. And I think when you have a character who's deep into politics and is seeing every conversation as psychological warfare, they're really holding on to the stakes. Every little thing has stakes. You know, a word drop here, a look here, a signature here from big to small scope. Um, it's all about the stakes. And I think when, when stakes are attached to things, they automatically take on more importance. So even if we're just talking, Caitlin, like you said, like office politics, you know, someone wants the spot next to the water cooler or something simple like that. The stakes being important to the characters really makes the politics of that decision important. Yes, it all it all circles back to personal motivations. And I think we've already mentioned this before, but usually people, whether they're out for government type political gain or social political gain, political gain or anything like that, it's because of something. It's it's personal. It's the water cooler. It's I want to sit next to the president at the banquet table. I want, you know, like it's it's little things like that. So that's a good transition to our next question, which I'd phrased as how to make intrigue intriguey. And basically by that, how do you make these plots and this corruption, how do you make that interesting in and of itself? If you just think about consequences of actions, that really helps make the intrigue feel intriguey because a lot of times like the smart characters are a step ahead. And so they've, they've guessed what the next consequence will be and they're manipulating people's reactions rather than like actual events. And obviously that's not going to go correct all of the time, which leads for some really interesting storylines. Like I think a series that does this pretty well, at least in the beginning beginning seasons, was Game of Thrones. Because basically the whole story kicks off because a bratty kid kills the wrong guy and there are consequences. And that's what makes everything happen. The peasants liked him, so now they're upset, so now they're going to cause problems for the rulers, and then the rulers have to respond, which causes like a famine, and the famine gets other people upset, and now there are multiple parties all at stake about the same thing, and none of those consequences are things that like your average Joe would have seen coming, but they're all things that can be used as tools by wily characters later on. And so just sort of allowing your characters to see opportunity and seize it, but also to suffer from the opportunities that they've seized, I think really helps make the intrigue feel exciting. I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a classic hook, right? When you're talking about the idea of chaos as a ladder. If you look at, <laughs> I'm going to pull out uh, Palpatine there as a thing, right? The entire point of the first three films is him creating enough chaos that he can become emperor. That's essentially his plan. It's very carefully orchestrated chaos, but it's a lot of chaos. Um, So generally speaking, if you have someone who's trying to take power through underhanded means, they need to ferment chaos somehow, because power structures are much more easy to topple when they're distracted by something else. Yeah, I think that brings up a great point, too, just about complicating the situation. I always love the Game of Thrones intrigue. When you find it in a book or, for instance, in Megan Whalen Turner's The Queen's Thief series, there's a lot of good political intrigue. And it's so intriguing to me because I just see the tip of the iceberg, but I get hints that there's so much more underneath, um, that everything's connected, that when one character makes a decision, the author has then asked, so what? So this character, you know, sees the queen slipping a note to a maid, and then maybe they go after the maid, and maybe they tell someone else, and that person tells the king, and the king makes this decision that then uh, cuts the queen out of a war meeting, and the, the country goes to war. So it's so fun to see see the beginnings of actions and then see how those actions can have a lot more weight at the end, kind of like a snowball effect down the mountain. I think Holly Black does that really well. Like I, I was thinking about the Cruel, Cruel Prince trilogy the whole time we've sort of been talking because that is so much politicking and intrigue. And a lot of it is just 
guessing about consequences and things getting worse and worse as as they keep going, which I, I guess maybe that's the heart of a political fiction book is that things just have to get worse and <laughs> that's all you have to really worry about is making sure that everything compounds. Well, we've touched on this briefly before, but um, how with that, when things are compounding, how can you juggle the personal and political motivations in a character? Is there a line? Does it matter? I, I guess I just sort of, I just feel like politics are deeply personal. I mean, if you think about real life, people get so upset about it because it's reflecting your deepest held beliefs and, and your, your thoughts about morality and the role of the government and like kind of big picture questions that kind of feel like personal attacks when people disagree with you. And I think that's, that's going to be even truer in like a fantasy world because like, I care a lot about elections, even though my voice statistically is very little. So I can't imagine, I mean, like, like you have to assume that like the princess who is in charge and actually has to make the decisions herself or like the peasant who is being sent to war or, you know, like it's going to be even more personal for those people. So I, I just feel like your political motivations are almost always personal in some way. I don't see how it could be otherwise, at, at least and be believable and interesting. I think that, as we mentioned before, all of those personal consequences, I feel like they're at their best when they're directly in conflict with one another. Because a lot of times you have a diverse group of people who all have needs that are directly in opposition to one another. Like, I mean, look at if you look at the United States, it's exactly that. And there are people who, who do not get along because they're like, can't you see if you do this, I will die. And the other side's like, if we do this other thing, then I will die. Or if we do this, my business will go under. Or if you do this, I won't be able to buy food. You know, like there's a lot of stuff that's directly in, in conflict with each other. And I feel like the government's job is to like hurt the fewest people with policy, which they don't always do a good job at. But if you can if you can represent that, just like Kristen was saying earlier with Game of Thrones, where you have um, a cascade of, of consequences that affect a diverse group of people in, in adverse ways, where you can bring in a lot of different things happening, then you can get really complicated really fast because that's just life. Yeah, life is so complicated. And I think at the core of it, you know, we have these, or the characters have these needs and then the needs equate to an idea for them. And so you have these different groups of people that stand in front of the idea, but ultimately it's, you know, you strip away the people and it's the idea conflicting. So you can have the same, the same needs in conflict on the battlefield and have, you know, thousands and thousands of soldiers on each side clashing, or you can have a boardroom with just two individuals and the same idea can be clashing. When you're able to pin down the needs that are in conflict, the ideas, I think it can scale really easily between huge epic fantasy and small interpersonal stakes. Well, and on the flip side, it's also, like Kristen was just saying, you can have the king who's like, if we don't go to war, then this other country might take us over and then my son and my heir will die. Or, and then you can have the peasant who gets sent to battle who's like, if you send me to battle, I'm leaving my family without somebody to make money for them or to till the fields or whatever, and they'll starve. So you have like two very different stories being told um, on very different levels. That's... A very fun conflict. I feel like um, The Way of Kings does that really well. You see the big picture and you also see the very small picture. Which then becomes the big picture. <laughs> <laughs> very quickly. So if, if writers are looking to develop their political savvy to figure out how to make their books more intriguing and more political, are there any resources or any places, things they can do to develop that skill? 
I think I've mentioned this at some point in the past, but um, on YouTube, CGP Gray's uh, video called Rules for Rulers, um, I think it's the best primer I've ever seen for just sort of a, a ground-level explanation of why people in power often act that the way that they do. It, it does a really good job of explaining about like whether you're looking at like an absolute monarchy, a pure democracy, a military dictatorship, any of those things. There's some basic rules that apply to how people keep power um, and use it. And I just and some of it's not necessarily intuitive, so I, I recommend it. There's another really great book called The Dictator's Handbook. I need to look it up so I know who wrote it, and I should have done that before we started, but it's a really fun, uses real-world examples of how real-life dictators both took and held power based on how they treated the people around them. My one piece of advice isn't really a source. It's just I often get stressed out writing political stuff in my books because I just feel like I'm having to outsmart myself like over and over and over again, and that seems pretty impossible. So... The one thing I would say is that you don't have to have brilliant plans figured out and this is some stuff that can be taken care of later and slowly and in editing and in revisions. There's no need to be stressed by it. It's a thing we can fix. I'll definitely second that, Kristen, because that's that's what I face when I'm writing is trying to be so smart and so sophisticated, as sophisticated as, you know, this monarch who is deep into intrigue. Um, and one thing that's helped me is remembering that as the author, I can set the rules. So if I need to dumb it down, I can still dumb it down and it will still be cool. There are a lot of different things you can do. I'll also put in a plug for, I'm a big fan of using some of my favorite novels as textbooks. You know, pick the Game of Thrones, the Way of Kings. And I love going through and analyzing exactly how the author complicates the situations, exactly how they set up their power structure and their stakes with the politics. And that's fun too. Okay, awesome. We'll go ahead and hop over to the second part of our podcast where we, where we critique an audience submission. If you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes on it, you can do that on our website, litservicepodcast.wigsite.com slash litnation. And if you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So does anyone have a quick summary of this week's submission? We have a bionically maybe enhanced soldier, questionably enhanced soldier, who is also a bounty hunter who is trying to capture a bounty. So sounds like some good politics and good stakes are already at work here. What are some things we liked about the submission? I think there were some pretty funny lines. I'll go ahead and read one that I really liked. There's a part where like his eye is like running a diagnostic program and it says running diagnostic program 1305 tear up buttercup buttercup it's gonna be a-okay and i just thought that was very humorous especially because then he comments and it's like uh this eye is so stupid which i appreciated i like that too along with the eye i really like the promises it makes that we have bionic eyes not only available but on the black market and that his is terrible i love all the world promises <laughs> yeah. that are being made with all of this stuff yeah, I like that too. And I liked just the idea that this this guy is trying so hard to do his job, but his eye is getting in the way was kind of funny to me as well. I think there were some good character voicey moments. Like there's a part where he's talking about like his friend, I guess, who got on the eye and he's like, Set always knew the right people. Set always knew the wrong people. And I just sort of love that like Set is this troublemaker who knows everybody for any situation. Like, that says a lot in a little bit. I like that we get a clear motivation drop kind of near the end-ish of this where um, we've, we realize that he's doing all of this and he's dealing with his terrible eye and his annoying co-soldier who's too young to be out here and obviously in a slightly difficult situation because he wants to go home, which I feel like is the great beginnings of 
not to keep bringing it back to the eye, but I also liked a moment where his smaller soldier sidekick asks him if he has a real synthetic eye. That made me smile. I liked the conversation between him, like between Orion and the little child soldier that he's been stuck with, but like how the kid just keeps like prattling on and on and on and and finally Orion like sort of snaps and is like, okay, your bud Bernie seems to know a lot about me and I don't know a soldier name by that name. And I just thought that was a fun little bit of dialogue, good little character interaction between the two of them. What are some things that might need a second look? That interaction actually brings up probably my biggest thing, which is that I am really unclear about what it is that's going on and what is at stake. I mean, minus the I want to go home line, I am very confused both about where we are and what we're doing and how we're going to do it. Because there are lots of moments where we're very tense and like we have to sneak up on this shadow thing that has a dog that we would like to capture. But then there's also lots of moments where they're just like talking at full voice volume. Like there's a moment where the boy trips on him right after he like is about to catch the shadow and he takes all this time in the middle of this chase to be like, ah, you trip, terrible person. You know, like he sits and rails on this kid and they're in the middle of this chase and I'm like, I am very unclear as to what is going on and how quickly it's supposed to be happening, how quiet we're supposed to be or like even just basics like where we are. I I really struggled with grounding in this one. I'll second that. I had some blocking issues, especially during the the section where they're trying to capture the bounty. I think I think it was suffering a little bit for me from that classic like fantasy thing where you're not sure what's literal and what's metaphorical and what's pretty language and like what is exactly what you're seeing. So I had a bit of a hard time with that. On a really technical level, the first paragraph is in past perfect. And I feel like that is probably shooting yourself in the foot a little bit there there's really I mean this is prescriptive but there's really no reason for it to be in past perfect when we continue immediately after that so if I were to be really prescriptive I would just say just put it in past like the rest of the submission and it will read smoother I'll agree me too I will say as far as the blocking and what was going on and why we were there I felt like I was mostly on board and but then once the chase started it definitely got rougher I do wish as far as before the chase started, that we had more of a sense of, I don't know, some hint of why he was a bounty hunter in the first place. What, if anything, is actually waiting for him at home. Just some, not like a huge, like I'm not looking for like a paragraph exposition dump, but just some throwaway lines here and there to tell me what this guy is doing when he's not hunting people down. And then my only last point was that I feel like we, we get a lot of, lampshade is not the right word because it's very direct. We get the, This guy is supposed to be like the best of the best ever. And one of the problems I have with that portrayal is that, right, he's got this defective eye, which provides a lot of character and comedic relief, though I'm not sure we needed comedic relief here. It doesn't quite hold up that the best of the best is using equipment that could actively get him killed. Like, it's cool to have a bionic eye, but if it's going to randomly short out and make it so you can't see it anymore, why is, why is he even using it in the first place? I mean, he does turn it off. Yeah, right, it just shorts out randomly while he's lying away. That could have happened in the middle of the chase. If it's that unreliable, the best of the best don't use equipment that randomly shorts out when they need it. Your plucky gang of underdogs who can't afford or don't have the option of using different use equipment that could short out at any time. But people who have the time to choose what they want. My other comment would just be, I think this might come down to personal preference thing, so I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about it. But on that first page, there's sort of like a lot of 
noun and idea drops without context for any of them. So like there's a paragraph that starts with like, he was letting Seds and his father's mystical eccentricities get to him. And then, but that girl had been metropy. He'd been younger. Something about the dream, something he didn't remember. And I got really tripped up there because like at that point, we didn't have any context for any of that. What girl? What dream? There, we haven't read about a dream. We've never seen the name said. It, it was just a lot without enough background for me. So I didn't have a place to slot any of that information. And by the end of the chapter, I'm not sure that we needed to know any of that really. So I, I guess maybe it comes down to just revealing details when they need to be revealed. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, to me, it felt like there was a lot of foreshadowing slash iceberging going on that was... It was it was too little a tip of an iceberg to the point where they sort of became instead of an iceberg you became like a gorilla in the phone booth where it was okay wait what what where we're we're distracted by the thing that has been dropped instead of becoming curious to read further if that makes sense I mean I feel like that's kind of what this submission is struggling with on a bigger level where we have a lot of stuff happening but we don't know why and we don't have enough connection to the character to care why yet and so it's just a bunch of stuff in a row that were like, Whoa. I mean, this could be, it's like, it's like putting action at the beginning of a book where we're like, it can work if the point of it is to reveal your character. But if the action in of itself is supposed to matter, it's really hard to care about a character who's swinging a sword around or a laser beam thing when we don't really understand where he's coming from or why. It's same with the dream. Like, why do I care about this guy's dream? Especially when I would, I would really like to know where he's standing. And I would actually continue that I feel like there's, it's more than just the dream and said later on, we have like an angel who's holding a person and a shadow with a dog. And like, there's a bunch of stuff that's put in, but never actually explained enough that I'm like, okay, I understand this one now. It's just like a lot all at once that it's never quite described enough. By the time we get to the angel statue, I have no idea what's literally going on anymore. So for a fix for that, would you say, you know, just a line or two more or just a few more words or does it need something more extensive for something like that? When we get to that section, we don't get any interiority as to what our viewpoint character thinks about what he's seeing. Maybe in this part of the world, giant angel statues in the middle of forest clearings are common. I, I don't know. He, do, he doesn't react at all to stumbling upon this scene. So I, I, I don't know what to do with it. I would say that I feel like this is written in a really distant third, which is fine for certain kinds of stories. And I personally feel like I'm, I, I have my preferences as far as that goes. And so as soon as I read this, I was like, oh, if only this was in deep POV, because then I would understand what was going on in this man's mind. So like a lot of my notes as I was going, I was like, it would be great. I mean, I feel like we get some thoughts from him. But we don't ever get him, like, in real time. We always get him kind of describing to us why he's doing something. Like, he'll mess with his eye, and he's like, oh, this eye, it's because of my my brother. And then he'll think, no, I have to do this other thing right now. I can't mess with my eye. So it, it almost feels like narration while I'm watching a movie instead of, like, it happening to the character as it goes. Well, and I'll, I'll speak in favor of Distant Third. I have read lots of books in Distant Third that I really like. Me too. Um, <laughs> and I, I do think it's a technique that can work because one of the benefits of a Distant Third is that you as a narrator, you as an author, get to narrate and provide information that like we wouldn't otherwise be able to have. And, and so you can totally use that to your advantage like if you don't want to take us super close to orion's thoughts and interiority that's okay but we still need that context we still need to see enough of the iceberg to understand what's happening and why we should care so maybe to add on to my earlier point about wanting interiority when he sees the angel statue or i like what 
y'all were saying, you don't have to go into here, you can just narrate whether this is a common thing. Because if you are staying, if you are being third and you're sticking to it, that's something you can do. And so maybe as a follow-up, if you're going to do distant third, you have to play to the strengths of distant third, which okay. is the ability to drop in narration to explain things. That's our time for today. Anybody have any final thoughts? Okay, awesome. To this author, thank you for submitting. We all enjoyed reading your work. Our next guest will be Adrian Tooley, the author of Sweet and Bitter Magic and forthcoming Sophie and the Bone Song. If you'd like a first chapter critique from Adrian, get us your work by November 25th. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It takes a whole team of creatives to produce the show, and it's help from people like you that keep us going. You can find us at patreon.com slash litservicepodcast. There you can get early access to podcast episodes, video versions of the show, and occasional bonus content. Thanks to Chelsea Mortensen for doing all our social media. Please remember to like, subscribe, and comment on the podcast wherever you listen so others can find the show. From Caitlin, Cameron, Aaliyah, and Kristen, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.